Hello, welcome to the newest episode of Art Bores. I'm here in beautiful Magdalena, New Mexico with my friend, the great Hill Snyder, artist, musician, curator, professor, and just general cosmic soldier. So welcome, Hills. Thanks for hosting me out here. We are in Hills's uh, art uh, gallery and performance space and studio called uh, Kind of a Small Array, a play off of a very large array, which is just down the street with all those satellites that you might remember from the movie Contact. And uh, so we're going to talk to Hills about a few different things today. Hills has begun to make the move to the town of Magdalena, which is a town of about 850 people in what mountain ranger is this right here? What's it called? Oh, the Magdalenas are the closest. The Magdalena mountains are the closest. Mm -hmm. So Hills is a San Antonio uh, icon in terms of the art scene there. And he is beginning the transition to move to Magdalena and to set up this new performance space and kind of a new chapter in his life. So let's talk a little bit, Hills, about sort of the appeal of New Mexico and this process of coming out here and why in particular you chose Magdalena and what is the kind of allure of this part of New Mexico to you? Well, uh, New Mexico has been part of my life always. Uh, my uncle had a ranch south of Clayton that I visited multiple times as a child and as a teenager and on into recent years. So there's that. And then I've been backpacking out here in the Lincoln National Forest uh, since I was a teenager. And um, there's just something about the place that um, it, uh, it has a silent way of speaking. Let's put it that way. That's a nice phrase. I like that. I definitely um, can feel that when I come out to New Mexico. It's interesting to me that in terms of ambience and or just sort of temporal quality, New Mexico feels very different from even West Texas. And I've been kind of thinking on this trip of what what it is that is different about it or what how to articulate that. Like how, how would, would you feel that New Mexico, Mexico is different than Texas? in terms of its, you know, kind of ambience and creative feeling when you're out here? Well, uh, a good bit of it is, uh, you know, the Native American cultures are very prominent here, much more so than in Texas, mm -hmm. even though there was some overlap there. Um, also, just the National Forest, we're on the edge of the Cibola National Forest, mm -hmm. which I'm excited to learn more about the the Gila National Forest is just south of here the Lincoln National Forest that I've hiked in extensively all my life is just two or three hours away mm -hmm. and then of course north of here another three hours north is the Carson National Forest so the mountains the forest the Native American cultures and then there's a lot of uh, the Latino culture is is just as present here as it is where we live mm -hmm. in San Antonio. So it's a great mixture of, uh, of things like that. And as a state, it's blue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, New Mexico is an, there's an easiness to it in the atmosphere here that is different from, I guess I would describe it as kind of a, uh, 
a rictus of hysteria in Texas in a certain way, a hardness of just people being very uh, angry, very uh, haunches up, etc. And I don't feel that as much in New Mexico. It's a little chiller, you know? Very much so. Although um, Rictus of Hysteria, I love their third album. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like they're, they're, the tour where they opened for Dream Theater was really great in 1989. Um, so, uh, and so when you were deciding on, you know, kind of, we've talked about, about this a little bit in terms of, you know, you coming out here and choosing Magdalena, but how did that process go of finding this? Because I have been very um, amazed and blown away by the community here is extremely interesting. I mean, just in the two days of the people that I met and the things that are going on here is really pretty special. So was that something you kind of knew about before coming here or was that kind of a surprise in that, you know, you just found this location that was close to a trailhead, which was appealing to you. And then there was this, you know, kind of, special art scene and scene of very interesting people here or did you know that that was happening already uh it did in fact start with the trailhead um you know a, a long a decades long dream was no gal canyon mm-hmm. in, the, in the lincoln national forest but that place is just too it's it's not affordable you can't get land there and so uh that was kind of the first criteria i wanted to be able to just walk out my door and go backpacking. Mm-hmm. And so that narrowed it down to basically, I looked all over New Mexico and in Southern Colorado. And then um, it got narrowed down to Magdalena, Madrid, and Crestone, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, Magdalena won out largely because of Warehouse 110, Catherine DeMarie mm-hmm. and Athena are a, a presence here that anybody that lives here will tell you that they've really made a difference in the town. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there, and then right away they welcomed me and I met a number of artists and poets and writers through them. Uh, and that, it, that continues to roll along and it just gets wider and wider and wider. So um, even though the land was the initial uh, magnet, the uh, the cultural aspects uh, are a great foothold for an artist, and there's a definitely a uh, there's there's absolutely no hip factor here mm-hmm. at all, which is of extreme appeal to me. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely noticed that there. It is, it's. I mean, I imagine maybe you know, a place like Marfa or something like that, like Magdalena would have some similarity to Marfa and say the, I don't know, the 80s or something like that, you know, at that, as I can imagine it being kind of like this, whereas now, of course, it's like, you know, it's very, very uh, commercialized, very um, self-consciously and intentionally hip, etc. And so it has an ambience. It's certainly, it's fun to go there, but it's not, this is, has a special quality to it that I would recommend anyone that's driving through New Mexico to stop in Magdalena. It's a beautiful place. And there's also quite a bit of interesting things to see. Um, so now that you're kind of making this transition, just, just, just for the record, I love Marfa too. Yeah. I I don't want to be saying comparative things. Sure. You know, 
but uh, Magdalena is has its own special appeal. Yeah, I mean, I love Marva too, and I go out there. I'm not trying to denigrate it in any way, and I go out there twice a year, and it's one of my favorite places in the world. It's just that in terms of if I were if I were to move somewhere, I would not move to Marfa because it's like a lot of places like Austin and to a certain extent, even San Antonio, the expression I used is they're finished, not that they're over. I mean that in the sense of furniture, they're, they're lacquered, the glaze is on, you know, it's so if you're there, then in a certain way, it's more difficult to kind of build your own story from it because the story is there and it exists. You know what I mean? Perhaps. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so now that you're here or in the transition of, of moving here, like, what do you see, uh, what sort of creative, you know, inspiration or plans do you have being out here? Do you think that, I mean, you've, uh, this weekend you had an opening of your show, which was a series of, of drawings from the Southwest, Trinati Hot Springs and areas like that. You'll have another show coming up in November at Ruiz Healy Gallery in San Antonio of other drawings in a separate series, but also throughout the Southwest and the West of the country that are these very beautiful and kind of mysterious colored pencil drawings. Do you see yourself continuing on that or do you find like something bubbling up of a different direction going forward? Well, there's, yeah, there's always bubbles. Um, I'm, one thing I want to do is use these drawings as a, as a window into painting. I haven't done any painting since 1972. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to, um, use the drawings as a launch pad for some paintings. But also, um, I'm itching to get back into um, another large-scale installation that continues this series of pieces I've done that are uh, connected by the lyrics of a song. Uh, that would be Book of the Dead, Misery Repair Shop, um, Casual Observer, Causal Observer, on and on like that. It's mm -hmm. a series of exhibitions. And I have one more that I want to do um, in that uh, to kind of bring that uh, endeavor to a close. Um, other than that, I'm just kind of wide open. That's mm -hmm. kind of what's on my mind. I'm getting ready to do a really uh, high intensity version of the Misery Repair Shop at the Silos in Houston mm -hmm. in October. I'm really excited about that. This, this is a piece that a performance piece that is, it's been performed in San Antonio three times and it's been performed in Slayton, Texas, mm -hmm. um, in the town square there. But I'm really looking forward to doing it in the silo. Uh, it's going to be way turned up and a lot of uh, hyper edges to it on, on a new whole new level for that piece. Great. Well, that sounds exciting. I'm sure that we will be covering that <laughs> when it comes through. And hopefully I can even make it down to Houston because I haven't seen that performance before. Um, so another thing kind of now to transition a little bit that's in the same vein of being in New Mexico and kind of what we were talking about of, you know, the atmosphere being influenced by Native American culture. Uh, an interest that you and I share is just kind of generally in indigenous folklore, indigenous culture and aesthetics, um, you know, ranging from, say, Native American creation stories or, uh, you know, Latin American indigenous culture. And in your class that you teach, you include kind of an element of that. 
in terms of whether it be you taking your students to the cave without a name and having them sit in silence or ranging from what we were talking about with the Neil Young song, Cortez the Killer. And there's this kind of lattice work of, that you create for your students and that I find very interesting. And so I'm wondering what you think all of that stuff, the value to you creatively and aesthetically, and you know, even spiritually too, if you want to talk about that. Uh, sure. Um, you know, what I think is going on globally is basically there's the capitalist war economy um, on, on one hand, and then there, there are all the indigenous cultures of the world on the other hand, and then there are people that were born into, you know, the mainstream cultures, the, the, um, the overculture, the capitalist culture, whatever. People that are the children of that culture that are, that are escapees. And, uh, and they're not just running away. I don't mean that by when I say escapee, I mean people moving towards the hope of the survival of the planet, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I see in the world. And I, uh, in my class at UTSA, I view what I'm doing as kind of a homeopathic uh, tincture that's um, an alternative to the usual Western art history trip that you get in, a, in, a, in an American university art program. Um, so maybe that was a circular answer. I don't yeah, know. I mean, that definitely makes sense to me. And I mean, one of the things of why over the past few years, I've become especially interested in basically non-Western culture and art. So that will range from everything from music, especially from you know South America, uh, the Caribbean and Africa, to uh, literature from those regions as well. And then sort of the indigenous folk culture and creation stories. And the reason I think on some level is just because looking around the world today is not something that I feel like deserves to be saved, deserves to be venerated, or deserves to be defended, really. It seems fairly dysfunctional and kind of horrific in a certain way. And so the spoils of quote-unquote Western civilization, whatever that means, and the way that perhaps like a lot of conservative people and conservative thinkers like to talk about, you know, preserving that or saving that is frankly kind of baffling to me. Like I don't see, I mean, I certainly, to me, the pinnacle of Western civilization is probably symphony halls, you know, going to the symphony is about as good as it gets, but there's so many other things just in terms of, you know, as you say, the capital war economy that is pretty, um, pretty devastating and pretty appalling on many levels and especially of what it's doing to the planet. And then you think for what too? what, like, what, what are we abusing the planet like this for what, for, for basically like gated communities in Orlando and things like that, you know, the, the result of it is so underwhelming to me that I think that that's one of the reasons why in the past few years of just 
being very disillusioned on many levels with the modern world of becoming interested, you know, and, and sort of different, different cultural lineages and different aesthetics, different stories, et cetera, you know? Yeah. I mean, at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say uh, that the, you know, the Western literary canon needs to go down in flames. I, I don't mean that at all. I don't mean and, that and, either. And, and all, and, you know, all of my musical in, uh, influences and loves come from, are rooted in the sixties for the most part. I love all that still. I'm not really including that. Um, I'm not in, in yeah. terms of the, this, the, uh, this kind of greed machine. that's just trying to destroy everything just to get, just to line its own pockets is, um, and I'm not really saying that, you know, Western art plays into that, so to speak, but uh, it's just, I, what I want to give my students is you're not just here to acquire skills and get shows and have a career and get attention for your work. You're here to um, use your creative effort as a way of finding the, you know, the larger self inside you that's behind the illusions of personality and the accidents of geography. Um, and it's not some, it's not a point of view that you usually hear in discussions of modernism and postmodernism. Yeah. I mean, and to clarify, like I am not setting up and, and saying, you know, that the Western canon of literature or art is, should be thrown away. That's not what I meant at all. It's more of just my kind of general revulsion to the greed machine, as you said, has led me away from Western things because that's what I was raised in and that's familiar. And so on some level I felt drawn to or felt some pull towards just sort of different ways of thinking about the world, about being a person, about what a soul or a spirit is, about what you know s- stories you tell each other to process these things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe them on some sort of granular level about that this is the truth of the universe, but it's just an interesting alternative that I feel like is kind of expansive, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, well, on that note, let's talk a little bit just about just some of your favorite things recently, whatever it might be. Let's talk, you know, books, uh, Let's talk about uh, Drug Dealer. Drug Dealer, the band, is a band that Hills is a big fan of. The End of Comedy. The End of Comedy. It's my favorite record from the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, the, re- the, rec- the, the album ends with something that I'm pretty damn sure is a bufo laugh. <laughs> and um, it's just a great record. And it was... It ended up on my uh, music machine, like doubled somehow. Mm-hmm. So each track followed itself, and then it moved to the second track, and it followed itself. Right. So I, I, it was just on there in that manner. So I was on a road trip, listening to each song twice before listening to the next song twice before listening to the next song twice, and it had this really hypnotic effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, hearing it in that manner. It's a great record. Yeah. 
And then we've we've talked recently about uh, the movie The Writer is a movie that this year that we both really responded to that I would recommend any of the listeners who haven't seen it. It's a very beautiful movie about Lakota rodeo riders in modern day America and kind of the the illusion slash disappearance of an idea of Western masculinity, you know, and that's definitely something that's very present in New Mexico and in West Texas. You really feel it. I, when I was driving out here and stopping at Odessa and Midland, I really felt like that was kind of the edge that looked out onto the West in a certain way. Midland kind of is like the edge of the Canyon or whatever that looks out over this idea of Western mythology. And there's so much literature in the bookstores in Midland and Odessa about, um, you know, the idea of the Western man, the idea of the cowboy and everything like that. It's such a sudden verticality Mm -hmm. in the flatlands of West Texas, Midland is. And it, it really does kind of stand out there like the Marlboro man. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, you know, that's the writer, although it doesn't take place in, in New Mexico, there's a kind of a emotional and, and thematic current to, to this area. Cause one of the things that's kind of strikes me about being up here is that there is, there's a theme of, of loss and disappearance out here, you know, things come and go and they mining towns, for example, there's a, an abandoned mine up the road from this gallery that we're recording in right now, a Kelly mine that's empty and that's kind of all over the west is these various kind of ghost towns and that i kind of in a certain way connected to your drawing series in a sense of that the negative space it's like they're almost dissolving in a certain way in front of you you know that they're just there for a moment and then the white space and the drawings is sort of like subsuming the rest of it in slow motion if that and i think that that's both a play on the memory of how you you know looking at a picture from the place and then drawing that in the terms of the way that memory and perspective works, but also perhaps just kind of the story of, of the West in a certain way is a story of things disappearing, you know, even if they were never even there to begin with, like the sort of mythic illusion of the cowboy, you know? Yeah, I, I, can, I can relate to all that. Um, the, there's something else in the drawings that um, that I think is attractive to me is that it's, it's um, you begin to notice that things have a shine or a glow mm-hmm. um, or a luminosity that is within physical reality. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope the drawings convey that somehow as a, I think as an after effect, it's not something I tried to put in the drawing, but uh, I hope, I hope that it's there. Yeah, and that makes sense. And you just saying that and, and looking at the drawings uh, made me think of, I'm reading a great book right now called Trickster Makes This World by Lewis Hyde that's about just basically trickster mythology ranging from everything from Hermes and Greek mythology to coyote and Native American mythology and kind of tying that current to a lot of, a very wide range of things, including kind of bringing in the music of John Cage. And there's a passage where Lewis Hyde writes that he went to a John Cage concert in the 80s and he found it really boring and kind of left midway through and thought, well, this wasn't very good. But then after that, and it was a concert of John Cage, basically sort of randomized incidental sounds and music, you know, music, quote unquote, basically, you know, collage field works. 
etc. But then after that, he had the experience of just as if his ears had a champagne cork in them and they were, you know, uncorked, you know. And so then everything around him took on like this luminosity of sound and this clarity that was interesting. It was like he finally felt like he heard the world for the first time, you know. So that's that's a, a very cool and interesting uh, effect that I think art can have, you know, to essentially help you either hear or see things anew, you know? For sure. Um, also, you mentioned myth. Um, it's a word that means a lot to me. And for me, uh, I'm completely um, just kind of stunned when people use the word myth as if to mean something that's not true. Mm. It's to me, it's the exact opposite. The, the, the mythic reality is, is the truth of any given thing that's, um, uh, that lies underneath it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's the, the, the uh, total opposite of say the old wives tale. Uh, right. So, um, yeah, that, that really, it really annoys me when I hear the word myth used in that manner. Right. And I mean, it's a very uh, blinkered and small way of viewing the world of saying whether or not something is literally true, but in like whatever that means of your criteria of literal truth is extremely um, precarious and can be fractured very easily under not very much rhetorical scrutiny whatsoever, you know? And so things, a myth has a truth to it, even if it's not, didn't exactly happen. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? And I think about that with a lot of things. Like, for example, you know, Carl Jung is, I don't believe that Carl Jung's analysis of the way that, you know, the human psyche works is literally true. But the, some of the things that he writes about do have this beautiful, you know, the long night seed journey. And these other phrases that he comes up with to kind of articulate various human conditions do have, you know, a poetic and a mythic truth to them, you know, and it's not that important whether or not they're literally true, you know, and that applies to a lot of things. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I've gotten really interested in a lot of various mythology is that it's not that those things happen. There wasn't a trickster God or whatever, it, but they do have a certain truth of a human uh, experience or a human development of a way to process that through narrative, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm going to have to think on that. <laughs> um, well, on that note, uh, is there any current art or books that you're reading that you'd like to give a shout out to or anything? Sure. I've, I've been reading this novel called The Overstory mm -hmm. by Richard Powers. Oh, yeah. He's great. It's all about trees. Yeah. He's a great writer. And it, it, it branches out nicely. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> nope. <Yeah>. Unintended. <laughs> um, the structure of it is a number of unrelated characters are introduced to each, each in its own chapter. And then uh, that gives way to a section called trunk. That's where I am now. Oh, okay. And I'm just beginning that section and the stories of some of the uh, characters are beginning to uh, intermingle a bit in that. Uh, so I guess it's structured like a tree maybe, mm -hmm. but I'm really digging that. And uh, of course, um, 
I uh, I got to see a Michael Pollan lecture in Albuquerque right after we came out here. Oh, nice! And his new book is important because it's about microdosing, right? Not no, not just microdosing. It's about it's about uh, plant medicines that naive people call drugs. Right. But that that's a deep misunderstanding of what these materials are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's significant about it? Um, is that Michael Pollan is a guy of great stature in the world of nonfiction writing. Yeah, he's a superstar. So so it's very good for someone in that position to be uh, presenting these materials in a mainstream kind of way because these psychoactive medicines are deeply misunderstood by the culture at large. Yeah. And there's there's actually another book... um, that I encountered by accident out in southeastern Arizona. It was in a library that I was hanging with for a couple of days. Uh, I don't recall the full title of it, but it's by a guy named Joe Tefer, mm-hmm. uh, who's a medical doctor that um, has been working with peyote and ayahuasca. And um, it's it's right up there with Michael Pollan's book. He's not as he's not as well known as Michael Pollan, but he he's a legit doctor. And uh, I think it's really important that uh, this kind of uh, publication is happening. Yeah, it is. It's very important. And hopefully in the next few years, there really will be a kind of a sea change on that in terms of the therapeutic, extremely powerful therapeutic qualities of these plant medicines that were basically suppressed for for reasons of just racism hysteria and greed you know there's not the reason why that these plants have not been able to be studied not been able to be used in medical therapies is pretty much nothing to do with any sort of medical basis whatsoever it's all politics and it's all politics of basically fear and venality so right and also just the cliche that the psychedelic experience is is largely visual that is so silly Mm -hmm. it's 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 about the beneficence that underlies the universe and it's a a feeling of deep gratitude and it's so beautiful and so loving and there's yeah i mean the, the scientific reality behind that is that it causes a chemical change in your brain for a temporary amount of time that lowers basically the parts of your brain that create a separation between you and the rest of the world. And so that experience is like a literal experience that's happening of you basically connecting to the world in a way that you can't otherwise on the way that your brain runs. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's what, uh, in other liter in other literature, it's called the formatory apparatus mm-hmm. that, um, you know, allows you to, move through the world in a linear way in order to accomplish this and accomplish that. But, um, on just the level of pure being, um, it's a disconnect. Yeah, that's true. Well, that is a great place to stop. So thanks Hills. And thanks for having me out to have Magdalena and, uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Let's head on down to T or C to yep. listen to the paper moonshine. That sounds good. We're going to true the consequences tonight to hear a band that, Hills is friends with and is bringing out for a show tomorrow night in Magdalena. Thanks a lot. 